Hey church, Pastor Adam here, and I want to say thank you so much for stopping by to join us for church online today. And and while we are super stoked that you're hanging out with us this morning, we do want to remind you that really this is just supplemental. And man, it just cannot replace the local church in your life. And so look, we hope that you are encouraged and and challenged and shaped by today's message that's being preached. Uh, But but also, we don't want to be your substitute. Uh, for the local church body that you should be involved in. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan A in reaching the world. So with that being said, please come hang out with us in person uh, one Sunday. If you're in Paducah in the area, come hang out with us to get some rest or find a local Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church that you can get plugged in and connected to. Uh, Jesus loves the church and and we love Jesus and, and we believe that we can better serve uh, Jesus, if we love his church well. So, welcome to rest. Uh, we're, 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 let me put this in a, in a feminine term. We're exfoliating the text. Okay, so, so the, the, the purpose of what we're trying to do as we step verse by verse, word by word, is that literally it, 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 we're doing an exposition. We're opening up the text and laying it bare. And, and if you're a person who's like, man, um, uh, sometimes I feel like it, it, I, I, there's a lot going on, and it's intentionally. It's intentional to teach you how to read the scriptures alone. It's intentional because what we're doing is we go in and we're surveying the scriptures as we're laying it open that we're trying to derive to the correct, big word alert, hermeneutic, okay? What that means, that word hermeneutic, is the interpretation. And there is only one, uno, single interpretation as we get into the scriptures. You know, I always love it when people are like, well, that's not my interpretation. Your interpretation is wrong. There is only one, and that is what the writer intended for the receivers of that text to understand. And that's why it's critical that we understand not just, not just the, who was writing and, 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 and where the church was, but we understand the dynamics that were going on in that particular church's context, that particular church's life, that we understand the words and the nuances in the original language, not to make it so complex that we as English readers can't approach it, but it's critical that we understand that because if we do not, sometimes we will miss that correct hermeneutic, that correct interpretation. And so that's what we're trying to do here. And so this morning, if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 1, we are going to read again for the third week in a row, Romans 1 through 7. Yes, yes, yes. I texted Adam last night at about, I don't know, it was like 8 o'clock, and I said to him, do you ever get to the place when you're writing your sermon that you, that you kind of get to the wrap-up and you go, you know what, I'll just wing it. And he was like, yeah. He goes, I feel like if you do that, though, uh, we'll be on like high on Paul week 15. So here we are, high on Paul part three. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. 
set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God and power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the word of the Lord Church. Let's pray. Father, Lord Jesus, we we come to you this morning. And we pray that as we open your text, as, as we come to your holy and sacred script, that God, that you would move our hearts. God, we, we collectively, as a body, as the ecclesia, we come and we, we lay bare before you and we say to you, God, move and change us, change our hearts, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Here and in and through us, may you have all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. It is in Jesus' Son's name we pray, amen. So last week we opened up and, and we really kind of just looked at verses one through three as Paul kind of gives us this prologue that we see here in Romans 1 through 7. And, and the, the key thing, is, as I said, Paul is winning his writers to understand. One key fundamental fact is he's writing to them is this, is, is that we all come to understand that on the most basic level, he wants his readers to know that Jesus Christ is his chief identity, that Jesus and Jesus crucified is his chief identity. And, and what we understood, we brought a couple people up, and, and I have to apologize, I really set you guys up last week. I knew what you were going to kind of say, and then I, then I threw this punchline up, and, and it was this, um, how we introduce ourselves is how we see ourselves. The introduction that we give to people when we meet them is how we identify ourselves as a human, how we identify ourselves, Missy said last week, as a mum. That's how we identify ourselves. And so Paul is screaming to the Romans, Jesus Christ is my chief identity. And he kind of does this as he says these three phrases to unpack them. He wanted the readers in Rome to know that he was a doulos, a slave, a slave for Jesus. And not just that, he didn't just say, hey, I'm a slave for Jesus, but he says, I am an apostle. What is an apostle? It's someone who's been set apart or someone who has been commissioned personally by Jesus. And what we saw, we, we looked at the three main key fundamentals that were our requirements to be an apostle. And, and Paul checked this one right here, number three, most of all, that he was commissioned personally by Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then we see that he is set apart. For the gospel of God. And we kind of unpack this word gospel, right? How many of you have heard the word gospel before in church? Yeah, right. You know, it's like, and as I said last week, if you've listened to me preach for five minutes, you've heard me say it 275 times. 
It's my favorite word, and it's because it, it brings to the greatest sense the greatest redeeming work of all time. What does the word gospel mean? In its most literal sense, the, the Greek word euangelion means good herald. In a practical sense, it means good news, that a good herald is bringing good news. And when Paul says that he has been set apart for the gospel of God, essentially what he's saying is, 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 is this, is that he's been set apart to tell God's good news about himself, to tell God's good news about himself. And so that's kind of what we see here. And he, he finishes out last week in our text as he starts to unpack that Christ Jesus is the divinic king. And what I mean by divinic king, that he comes from the line of David, that he was the promised future Messiah, that he was the promised future king of Israel, that through Jesus he would establish the throne of David forever and ever. And, and so that's kind of the premise of what he's getting at here, that he was the long-promised one. And this week, as we come to verses 4 through 7, we're going to see that Paul shifts his focus from just God's redeeming work or, or just the good news of the gospel to more personal implications that the gospel has on its readers. How many of you know that the gospel is personal? Right, right, right. Some of you are like, yeah, yeah, I think so. It's, it's the literal transformation of life to death. It's the most personal word that you can have. Is the gospel personal for you? Are you a, a good herald? Are you heralding the good news of Jesus because of the redeeming work that it has done for you in your life? So as we come here this morning, I'm going to back up. We're going to read verse 3 and verse 4 together because you can't separate the two here. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. In verse 3, to the church in Rome, Paul establishes that Jesus is the promised divinic king. Now in verse 4, he's going to intersect this thought of Jesus being the divinic king to Jesus' divine authority or Jesus' deity. So what, what am I getting at? The implication by Paul is that verse 3 is that the Messiah has came and he has died. But not just that he has died, but that he has been declared the son of God. And you're like, hold on, wait a second. Where did that declaration come from? Pastor, what are you reading? Because I just read that, and, and I, I'm not really reading that. Okay, so here's what you see. Verse 3 is that he's the divinic king, that he is the promised one. And then verse 4, it said that he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. So what's Paul not saying here? So let's first unpack what Paul is not saying. Number one, Paul is not saying that Jesus was only declared the Son of God after post-resurrection and that Jesus did not have divinity here on earth. That's not what he's saying. What Paul is actually saying is that the resurrection is God the Father's megaphone to all of creation that this is my Son. 
Through the resurrection, God the Father is saying to creation, I approve of his redeeming work. I approve of his life and his death. I approve of his sacrifice on the cross at Golgotha in order for him to become, become the redeeming one of Israel. That on the cross, he became the propitiation. That on the cross, he became the substitutionary atonement on behalf of you and I. That he stood in our place and that God accepted and that there on the cross when he said to Telestai, it is finished that death and sin were forever absolved through the blood of Christ Jesus. The resurrection is God the Father's megaphone to the world saying, this is my son. Jesus has been declared the son of God, Paul says. He has been declared to be the son of God. That, that Greek word, haderizo, means that he has been shouted to or reverberating to all of creation, this is my son. In his resurrection, Jesus was vindicated as the Son of God. Paul is emphasizing Jesus' exaltation in his coronation. This imagery of a coronation comes from Psalm 2-7, which speaks of the crowning of the divinic messianic king. And so he's, he's nodding back at that. Paul wants the readers to know that God the Father was not quiet, God the Father was not soft in his coordination or his coronation of Jesus as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Rather, it says that he was declared as such. How was he declared, church? What's that one key word there? Let's flip back to that verse. That he was declared in power. That he was declared in power. This word there in power the greek word is dunamis say dunamis it's where we get the term dynamite in english so sometimes and and, and i i feel weird doing this kind of like a heretic but kind of like a jesus lover at the same time some of you got that I want to read this and I want to be like, he was declared in dynamite, right? Like when dynamite goes off, everyone knows. Have you ever been around an explosive going off before? Yeah, it'll wake you up, man. You're not sleeping through dynamite. You're not just, you know, casually walking by and dynamite go off beside you and, you know, not notice it. It's a thing that you notice. And that's what Paul is saying to us is that he has been declared through power, through dynamite, that this is the son of God. In other words, in Jesus's earthly life, he was the son of David in weakness. He was hungry. He was tired. But after the resurrection, he was weak no more. No, 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 no. He became the lion of Judah. He was and is the risen and reigning and glorified king. And that's what he's saying here. The resurrection and the ascension put Jesus in his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father, setting in the highest place, given to the name that is above every name, and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Because through power, through God the Father's power, he has been declared king of kings. 
The word dunamis, we're going to see this word come up quite frequently as you read Pauline letters, as you read his epistles. In fact, um, one of my favorite sermons that I can't wait to preach is when we get to Romans 1, 16 and 17. And I'm going to talk a lot about the Reformation because I love the Reformation. But we're going to talk about how that, that this word dunamis and what it means, the power of God unto salvation. But not only do we see it in Romans, Deutimus, we see come up quite frequently when we talk about um, the redeeming work of Christ in our lives personally. While in this particular instance of dunamis or dynamite or power, in, in this one in particular, it connects to Jesus being the son of God. Later in this chapter and also in Philippians 3.10, he links together with the work of what's going on inside of us. A manifestation, if you will, an engine that powers the Christ follower apart from themselves. What, what is that power? Um, Philippians 3.10 that I may know him and the deutimus, the power of his resurrection, and may share in the sufferings becoming like him in death. That I may know the power, the deutimus, of his resurrection. When we come to know Jesus, we have this transformation from death to life. And in that transformation, this deutimus takes residence inside of us. This deutimus, this power that is outside of us begins to make us kind of like the little energizer bunny who never stops, right? What is this power? Where does it come from? It's the third member of the Trinity. It is the Holy Spirit. Romans 1, 3 through 4. And it was declared to be the Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness. The man Jesus was declared to be the Son of God through the Holy Spirit. When we talk about the resurrection, we often omit the Holy Spirit's work in the resurrection. We tend to only talk about God the Father and Jesus the Son and the redeeming work that happens with them. But, but it is impossible for us to strip out God the Holy Spirit from this work. It's a critical omission that we make. There are many links between the Holy Spirit and the resurrection. Later, Paul writes in Romans 8, 11, the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in us. That deutimous power, that power lives inside of you, amen? The very same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is there. Salvation was and is a triune work, meaning that God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son are all co-creators in our salvation. Wayne Grudem says this about it. In both creation and redemption, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all had distinct roles. It was the Father who directed and sent both the Son and the Spirit. And it was the Son who along with the Father sent the Spirit. The Son was obedient to the Father, and the Spirit was obedient to both the Father and the Son. And while both the Son and the Spirit have and continue to carry out their roles in equal deity to the Father, they do so in submission. So what, would, what do we see here? If I was to ask you at the top of kind of your Bible to make a number one, say God the Father, and number two, God the um, Son, number three, God the Holy Spirit, 
And in each place in this prologue, in verses 1 through 7, you were to go through and you were to number. And every place you see Father, you put a 1. Every place you see Son, you put a 2. Every place you see Spirit, you put a 3. What you're going to see is that God, the triune God, is working together in unity, in chorus together in this redemptive work. And Paul is laying that out. And while you might say, well, Pastor, well, this, this idea, this concept of the Trinity, it, it didn't really come apart. It didn't really come to be a thing until the um, Nicene Council and, 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 and post, you know, post 313 AD. That, that's not true. That's not true. In fact, the Arian heretics would want you to believe that that's true, but it's not true. In fact, the Council of Nicaea when they came together, they were just affirming the teachings that were already a part of the church for the previous 300 years. They were only coming together because this Arian um, teaching had come up to, to diminish the deity of Christ Jesus, to say that he was some weird, special, anointed person, but not really God. And so as they came together in the Council of Nicaea, it was there that they, that they declared and that they affirmed, saying this is the collective teaching of the church. Why, does, why am I bringing all this up? Because verse 4. And he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not until verse 4 that Paul actually names who the Son of God is. Jesus all this time, he's been saying, he's been saying, the Son of God, the Son of God, Christ, Messiah. He's been using all this, I, I, I don't want to call it veiled language, but it's language that, that, that it, it has multipliers on it. It's not necessarily, you know, hillbilly speak like us Kentuckians, right? And so now he's making it very, very clear, making it very clear. Who is the Son of God? It is Jesus. But he doesn't just say Jesus. He does something amazing, linking together multiple things in this description. What are those multiple things? He uses the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yeshua. What is that? God will save. But he, he doesn't just say Jesus, meaning God will save. He goes on to say Jesus Christ, Christos, the Messiah, the Son of God. And he doesn't just say Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, Jesus Christ, our Lord, hear us, God, the Messiah. So let's bring all this together. God will save the Messiah, the Son of God, God, the Messiah. He's saying with all his might that this is him. This is the long prophesied, long awaited one. And, and if you were a Hebrew reader who had, who had been studying and learning the Pentateuch, who had taken the Torah and, and who had put that on their lips, Life, following the law with all your might, long awaiting the Messiah, the anointed one of Israel, to make right all the things that have been wrong since the garden. When you read these words, your heart would leap, leap out of your chest. Though this title was correct for most of Jesus' ministry, for all of Jesus' ministry, this title was not really talked about frequently until Jesus' death. 
In fact, kind of this title, the first hybrid of what we see in this title that that Paul writes of Jesus in Romans chapter 1 actually comes from the apostle Peter in Acts 2 verse 38. I'm going to flash that, or 36, I'm going to flash that up. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom you crucified. So this is, this is Peter at the day of Pentecost speaking to the early church at the day when thousands come to know Jesus. And he's saying, he's saying to that group, to the assembly who are gathered there for the first time ever, ever he, is, he is basically creating this hybrid name saying that Jesus Christ is both Lord and God. Here in Romans 1, Paul is saying Jesus is the fulfiller of all of God's promises beforehand in verse 2. He is the risen and reigning Jesus Christ God. I, I, I want you to hear because the implication is direct. It is not to be parsed in any way. Jesus is not an anointed prophet as Muhammad claims in the Quran. Jesus is not some quasi-anointed Lord because God said so as the Arians or the Jehovah's Witnesses teach today. Church, Jesus Christ is our Lord and he is God himself. To deny Jesus Christ's divinity is to forsake Jesus altogether. He is Jesus Christ our Lord, God himself. It all boils down to Paul saying to the church in Rome, as he did in many of his other letters, it's not me who's declaring Jesus Christ as God. God the Father declared Jesus Christ as God through the power of his resurrection. The evidence speaks for Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to say it himself. The evidence speaks for him because nothing in this universe since the dawn of creation has happened outside of the control of God the Father himself. There is no special string that anyone can pull. Everything happens within his control. This brings much to bear. The implications are internally important, church. Dealing with the implications of this very thing, that Jesus Christ is God, that he is the long-awaited Messiah, it it brought together something very important. And Paul taught on this in Acts 17 at Mars Hill. He's dealing with this group of polytheistic men. And as he walks through... Um, kind of the pantheon there, he, he sees that they have this one statue, this one idol, and it's dedicated to the unknown God. And, and Paul says, hey, you don't have to search anymore for the unknown God, for he is here. And in basically, I want, I want to read to you what he says to this group and, and, and the implications thereof. Acts 17, 30 through 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked. He's talking about in the past. God overlooked the past ignorance. But now he commands, what church? All people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all things by raising him from the dead. 
So what, what am I getting at here? What, what are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying that because God the Father has proclaimed through the resurrection, Christ Jesus is Lord and God, that you, every person in all of creation, must confess him as Lord. And to, do, and to not do such is an eternal, an eternal mistake. Our personal thoughts or perceptions, they bear no weight on his true standing. Whether you believe or you don't believe, it doesn't matter because he is God. There will be no escaping all of creation's confessing of Jesus Christ as Lord. We will either do it in this life willingly or we will do it in eternity in fear. That's the reality. That's the soberness of the gospel is that we will either accept Jesus here or we will pay the punishment there. Verse five, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience from faith for the sake of his name among the nations. We can't talk about the redemptive work of Christ without coming to grace. Say grace. Hi, Grace. Grace, this term is God's favor freely given to those who do not deserve it. Grace is God's favor freely given to those who do not deserve it. By intertwining grace into verse 5, he is underscoring his position first as a Christian and then secondly as an apostle. He has achieved both of these titles, Christian and apostle, not by his own merit, not based on his favor, but on God's complete and undeserving favor. All favor that anyone, any of us have here today with God the Father is undeserving. Undeserving. As we walk deeper into Romans, Paul's going to make it clear that his human merit only brought him death. And that through his best of his best, it is still only worth death. This is true for us as well. Our best is still not good enough to earn the favor of God. The salvation we receive by putting our faith, our trust in Christ Jesus, it is a freely given gift by God. He underscores this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I want to read that. For by Grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It is a gift of God and not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we receive this grace. And, and, and what, does this, what does this grace call us to do? What is, it, what is it doing for us? All right, so look back at verse five, verse one, five. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. God's grace is, is there to stir up obedience in our life, to push us towards holiness, to push us towards Christ-likeness. The gift of grace is a call to obedience, church. The gift of grace is a call to obedience. Paul's not teaching the Gentiles that to be saved, they must both have faith and do obedience as though they were necessary grounds to be right with God. 
This is an obedience that comes from faith, that springs from a wholehearted trust in Jesus. So what, what am I saying here? I'm saying to you, you can't try hard enough to earn favor. Even if you even if you've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord of your life, you can't try hard enough to earn more favor from him. But what we do know is that by putting our faith in Jesus, by putting all of our trust in him, it flows out of us. Obedience is a result. So check this out. Obedience flows out of faith. It is the consequence of saving faith, not a second condition for saving. Here it is. It's up on the screen for you guys. Obedience flows out of faith. It is not a consensus or a consequence of saving faith, not a second condition of saving. So let me boil this down. A lot of words. Faith is the root. Obedience is the fruit. Faith is the root. Obedience is the fruit. Martin Luther put it this way. We are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. She has picked that up. We receive our merit from Christ solely on faith. Your good standing with God is solely on faith. But if we truly, truly, truly put our faith, our hope, our trust in Christ Jesus, obedience will flow from it. Obedience will be the result. Faith is the root. Obedience is the fruit. Saving faith is an obedient faith. Verse 5. Through whom we received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience from faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you. Verses 5 and 6 kind of take a new tone, a more personal tone for the believers in Rome. The purpose of this obedience, the purpose of, of this wellspring taking us to be holy followers of Jesus' word is so that we can take his news, take his name to the nations. From chapter 1 of the book of Romans to chapter 16, from the prologue all the way um, to the end of the book, what we will see in the doxology at the end is it is this push to take Christ to the nations, to take Christ to every tribe and every tongue that they may declare his good work. And that if we are truly Christ followers, our hearts should yearn for the nations. Anyone who would suggest, and I've, and I've heard Christians suggest this, and it blows my mind that taking Jesus and sharing Jesus and doing evangelism on the mission field is nothing more than colonization. I will tell you they are devoid of the Holy Spirit. To suggest that we should not go and share the good news of Jesus just because it might be perceived as colonization, that is a farce not found in the scriptures. To not take Jesus to the nations is the definition of eternal hate. And to take it deeper and, and, and closer to home for every one of us, to not take Jesus to our friends and to our family, to not take Jesus into our workplace, it is the definition of eternal hate. 
Because we're saying to the world, we're saying to those around us, I would rather you feel comfortable here than, than you and be okay with you spending eternity in hell. That's what we're saying. How ludicrous is that? In fact, if we, are, if we are possessed by Jesus, if we belong to Jesus, as Paul says, taking the gospel to the nations is some of Jesus' last words to his followers on earth. And so how can we claim to be the doulos? How can we claim to be slaves of Christ? How can we claim to be his and his alone if we are unwilling to do his very last command to us and to take his name to the nations? How? To belong to Jesus is, again, it's that notion of the doulos, to be a slave to Jesus. This call to belong to Jesus should compel us to deeper and more intimate relationship with him. It should beckon us to forsake our sin and choose to take a spirit of submission to do his will in our lives. So I ask you, do you belong to Jesus? I mean, you're here today. And, and you might say, well, pastor, I'm at church, so of course. But, but is your actions, is your words, is your heartbeat for the nations to make his name great so that all would confess him as Lord? Do you belong to Jesus? Remember, obedience flows out of faith. It is the consequence of saving faith. Obedience flows out of faith. It is the consequence of saving faith. Verse 7. To all those who are in Rome are called to be what? What does it say there? <clears throat> called to be saints. We are called to be saints. That word hagios in the Greek literally means most holy thing or to be set apart. You know, we don't tend to call ourselves saints. In fact, if, if I was to come to most of you and was to ask for you to kind of give me your description in, in, in relation to Christ, chances are you're going to say, I'm a sinner saved by grace. That's not incorrect. That's, by, by the scriptures, that's not incorrect. But what we tend to omit is the fact that we are saints. See, for some reason, we have, we have allowed this Roman Catholic thought that the only people who are saints are those who have performed enough miracles and have enough attestations to declare them as saints. And, and when they do such, we have a cool, nice mosaic of, of a beautiful stained glass that we put up in the window. But we only, sir, only use that term for those folks. And, and that is not true according to Paul's prologue here to the church in Rome. He doesn't say, hey, you special ones. He, he, he's speaking generally to all who Christ, call Christ Jesus Lord. He's calling them called to be saints. You are called to be set apart for his name. We are no longer sinners. I want you to hear that. 
I want you to think that when you look at yourself in the mirror tonight and you begin to start having these, these doubts about your life, you begin to start evaluating how much that you, that you missed the mark. The truth is, is that if you know Christ Jesus is Lord, there is nothing, as Romans 8 tells us, nothing, not height, nor debt, not principality, not rulers, not things that are present, not things that are to come to pass. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. So when the enemy comes at you today, you need to look at him and say, I'm a child of the king. I'm a saint from on high. You say, uh, help me, help me, help me ground myself. Because we, we all struggle at this intersection between our old self, our old sinful self, and our new redeemed nature. We struggle at this intersection. Can we, can we all agree to that? We, we, we come to this place where we're like, I just feel like Paul. I'm just a, I'm a wretched sinner, and that's all I can be. I'm the chief among sinners, and I, ca I can't seem to get out of it. This is, this is what the scripture says. This is from Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, say it together, new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We should not run from this idea in our mind that we are saints of God. The term is not designated for just the apostles. No, Paul gives this designation to the common folks in Rome. Understanding who you are and what you are in Christ will help you discover your identity and lay a proper foundation for your sanctification. You are a saint. So this morning, your posture should be that of a straight back. Your head should be held high, not low, not in despair. You should be able to say to Satan today, you ain't got nothing on me, buster. Because I'm a child of the king. I am a saint. I have been redeemed. I have been plucked out of my sin. And I have put my feet on the solid rock that is Jesus Christ. You are a most holy thing. Last week I, I, I shared this verse. And it's a verse, man, that every time I read it, 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 it wrecks me. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him Jesus the Son to be sin. Not, not that he had sinned in any way. No, he was perfect in every way. Jesus never failed, not one single law. He was the most obedient child to his parents. He was perfect in every single way. He made him who was perfect To be sin. So that in him Christ Jesus. We might become the righteousness of God. 
that should reverberate off the pages of Scripture at you. And if you're here today, you've never put your faith in Christ Jesus. You've never confessed Jesus as Lord. This verse right here is one of eternal hope. Is, is that it doesn't matter how much you've messed up. It doesn't matter how many times that you've missed the mark. It doesn't matter what you've done in your pre- previous marriage, whether you've been married five times, not married five times, if you've had multiple affairs. It doesn't matter if you've murdered somebody. It doesn't matter. And, you, and, 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 and the natural response of that is to recoil from that. That's the scandal of the gospel. It's that there is no one too far gone to be redeemed and to be called the righteousness of God. There is no galaxy too far away from his grasp. There's no heart too hard for him to move. That on the cross, he took our place. He took our place. He became our substitutionary atonement. And he wiped away the curse of sin and death that our father Adam in the garden had gave us. And he gave us his righteousness. But it requires something of us. That with our mouth, that we would confess him as Lord. That we would believe in our heart through faith and that we would confess him as Lord. And so I asked you, have you confessed Jesus as Lord of your life? Today, will you make the transformation to become a new creation? Will you move from saint to sinner? Will you choose Jesus as Lord? Will you confess that God the Father has announced to all of creation, this is my son? And will you confess him as Christ, the Messiah?